This is episode 625 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life so you can love your people, get prepared, and live free. On today's podcast, I have a special interview with Kat Ellis of TheHerbalPrepper.com. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is usually an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website. But from time to time, I interview members of the preparedness community who can bring a ton of value and information to your preparedness. Links for this podcast can be found in the show notes or on theprepperwebsitepodcast.com. Hey, this episode is sponsored by the exclusive Prepper Website email group, which allows you to communicate with other preppers right from your email. You don't have to worry about your every link, click, or word being tracked by social media. This email group resides on the same servers as Prepper Website. So for more information, you can visit PrepperWebsite.net or you can click the link in the show notes. Before we jump to the interview, I want to just give a quick shout out. I received two reviews. The first one is from Subin, Subin Bai, and it's from Sweden. So actually, both of these are international, and I think that's so cool. But Subin Bai from Sweden says, I recently stumbled upon this podcast looking for something new about prepping. I started my journey to preparedness one year ago and still have so much to learn. Todd manages to bring preparedness to my ears in a comprehensible way, and I always learn something new from each episode. Keep up the excellent work. And then from Dirty Jumper, uh, this is from it's from the UK. He said, I am a longtime prepper and have been listening to various prepper podcasts for many years, but this is by far the most informative best I have found yet. Also, if you are just finding this podcast now, then you have a huge back catalog to work your way through. I've been listening for over two months now, and they still keep coming each week, and they always touch on something current or current going-ons, and how to stay on your toes. Great work. Keep them coming. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, Dirty Jumper and Subin Bai for that. Uh, those reviews, they always mean a lot, and uh, I, I really do appreciate that. It helps other people that are looking for the podcast or deciding to you know to, to get in and, and, and to start listening when they see reviews like that. So thank you so much for doing that. Hey, last week I talked about bug-in recipes that uh, we were crowdsourcing and an ebook. And so this is something that people are contributing recipes to. And then I'm going to package it together in a free PDF ebook and then put that out there for the community, the preparedness community. And my vision is that I'm going to do this first edition. And then throughout the years, maybe every year, maybe every other year, still ask people to contribute and then add those as we go along. So I'm very excited about where we are right now. We're at about 40 recipes that have been submitted. And so at the time of this podcast or episode recording, uh, I am still accepting them. So if you are interested, and even after, like I said, even after this uh, this episode, after we stopped receiving them for this first edition, it's still going to stay open so people can uh, continue to participate. And then as we get you know more added, again, we'll throw out other editions. And so if you'd like to give uh, a recipe, if you'd like to participate now, I've made it very, very easy for you. Just click the link in the show notes. You can go right over there to the article and then get the information of, of what you need and then and then click into the document where you can leave your recipe. Guys, there's a, a lot of stuff still going on with the coronavirus. Um, that's this one of the things that I'm going to talk about with Kat Ellis on this episode, and we touch on that uh, and her new book. But 
as I uh, got ready to record the intro to this episode, uh, I found that there was, you know, someone died in Washington state from the coronavirus. So that's the first person in the United States who has uh, died because of the coronavirus. And so there's a lot to it. There's just a lot more. Hopefully you, if you are on the fence, that you are getting to the point where, okay, hey, uh, I need to take this a little bit more serious than just the flu. I think there's still a lot of normalcy bias out there. In fact, we talk about that. Uh, I've talked about that here recently on the other episode, uh, the most recent episode. And then I talk about it with Kat a little bit about the fact that people are just not, they they can't wrap their heads around this. And so I I still, I'm going to encourage you to stay informed. Don't just go from what the CDC is saying and what the the World Health Organization is saying, because they have been very slow to move. Of course, they're official government, you know, sanctioned organizations, and and they're going to be the official word out there. But I'm going to say continue to get informed. And I think that's very important. I created a a resource page over at preparedchristians.com where I have a couple of links and even some videos where I, that I think are, are important, uh, people that I've been watching every day. So Chris Martinson from Peak Prosperity, and then Dr. John Campbell, he is from the UK, and I've been watching him every day. And so if you go over to that article on prep, preparedchristians.com, the videos that are there will update automatically as they come out. So you don't have to go searching YouTube. I've made it very easy. And then there's a lot of other resources and the maps and different things like that. But I'm just going to encourage you to stay informed. Don't just uh, allow the 10 o'clock news to be your your news source here. Do a little bit of digging. Do a little bit of research. And by all means, please look at your preps. And this is the time to just be aware of what is going on and top off if you need to top off and all that good stuff. But we're going to talk about some of that in this episode. If you had a chance to look at the time, you know that this this podcast episode is very, very long and uh, there's a lot of good information there. But when we start talking about the length of, of podcast episodes, I think these people say like the op- optimal length is like 30 minutes, right? Something along along those lines. And so I thought about breaking this one up into two, maybe even three but I, I actually hate that when, when I'm listening to an episode of a, of a podcast and then they say, now nah, part two is coming out next week. I, I, I hate that. And so I have done that with like Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy or Dr. Bones when we were talking about specific things. We talked about antibiotics one day and then we talked about over the counter. So that was a part one and a part two. But this is different. This is all one topic and we're just all kind of, you know, going we're going along here. And I didn't want to break it up and and do that to you. So I'm going to, like I said, it's one long episode. So you can pause it. You can come back to it as you as you see fit. I think there's a lot of great information here. And the whole reason for bringing Kat on, uh, my idea is this. If the coronavirus continues to go on, well, we're already going to see some, some global supply chain issues. And so one of the things that you hear very often, and it's all over the news, is China is one of those, um, they actually, they don't create all the pharmaceuticals or all the medicines, but a lot of it is the starting place. And then from there, they go on to other countries and the pharmaceuticals are made. So if there is a supply chain disruption and there's already 
there's already word that that there are some medicines that are being becoming hard to find then what are our options out there so i started thinking about herbal medicine and i started thinking about what we could do along those lines and when i started thinking about herbal medicine i thought about cat ellis i've talked about her book before the prepper's medicine cabinet and so i thought it would be a good idea to have her on and so that is the idea behind all of this we start talking about herbal medicine, we talk about coronavirus, we talk about a lot of different things, just prepping in general. And so I hope this is very beneficial to you or beneficial for you. So let's go ahead and jump into this episode with Kat Ellis of TheHerbalPrepper.com. Hey Kat, welcome to the Prepper website podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. As like always on uh, when I interview somebody from the preparedness community, I'm very familiar with them. I, I've linked to articles. I, you know, I've looked at their books and different things like that. Um, but some of the people that are listening, some of my audience might not know you, might not be very familiar with you, although I do talk about your book. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey into just general preparedness? Sure. Um, so my name is Kat Ellis, and I got into preparedness because um, – my husband and I fell on some financial hard times. Um, we thought we were doing just fine. We thought we were carrying an acceptable amount of debt. And I was expecting my first child and I was diagnosed with preeclampsia. So I had to stop working. I was a massage therapist, so I couldn't be on my feet. I was ordered off my feet into bed. So, you know, if I'm not on my feet, I'm not working. So then he. Um, he worked in the mining industry at the time, um, working in quarries, and um, this was 2008. So we all know what happened in 2008. The economy went to this horrible recession, and his industry was hit first. They, they made, like, construction materials and such. Um, so they did a winter layoff, and it turned into a permanent layoff. So at that point, we were like, oh, no, what do we do? So that was... Um, that was sort of the wake up moment for, well, you know, okay. So then we started, then it started the spiral of realizing just how the systems can fail because, you know, we, we always thought we were never going to be the type to have to apply for assistance. We, we worked, you know, we, we took care of ourselves, we paid our way and all that. We were never the types, you know, that, that would ever end up on the system. So we, explored that option. And as it turns out, um, we didn't qualify for anything. Um, unemployment was like $5 too much to qualify for anything. Wow. So wow. We, yeah. And so we got nothing. Um, and we had to make do. And, um, you know, we always thought that we would never need it. But if we did, oh, yeah, that'd be there. Yeah, it's not really how it works all the time. So um, I was in a position in where I live um, that I have a yard and I could, uh, I made a decision. I'm like, well, food's expensive. Seeds are cheap. Let's try this. You know, let's, let's pull the little bit of money we got here. Um, Cause we spent most of our savings on Cobra payments because I was expecting my son. We had to continue health insurance. I was about to give birth and who, you know, and I ended up with an emergency C-section. So obviously I needed health insurance for that. Um, but that wiped out our savings because we had savings. We thought we'd planned. We thought we were doing everything right. 
And it turns out, no, no, we really weren't. And that the systems of support that we thought were going to be there for, you know, people like us who had paid into the system and done everything right. Yeah, no, that's not how it works. So we got then into a lot of, I guess, like homesteading type things, you know, so gardening and canning and a lot of DIY projects to make the house more comfortable without um, using lots of electricity, that kind of stuff. But then like, as, as you know, we got into it, we start reading more about the fragility of a lot of our systems. And, and we, we realized, oh yeah, it's not just this, you know, it's not just the welfare system. It's every system. It's, it's shipping. It's our agricultural system. It's our, um, oh, just, I mean, look, look at any type of emergency response from FEMA with hurricanes like Sandy or um, Katrina. I mean, it, these systems that you think are going to be there probably aren't going to work the way you think they're going to work. So um, I started listening to various podcasts and reading articles. And then um, because I, I'm also an herbalist. That was I. I did that along with massage therapy. You know, within that practice, um, I found myself in a lot of um, forums and stuff, answering questions about, well, if you know, you know, an end of the world as we know it situation happens, or you know, a, or whatever. If there's some type of a collapse, I rely on this medication. I don't know what to do, and I would end up sort of responding, you know, like. Obviously, I can't counsel you as you're not a client. I don't know your entire health background, but you might want to look into these herbs and such. So I, I started answering these questions, and um, there, there were two that really sort of um, propelled me to, motivated me to start my own website on this. And those two topics, one were diabetes and um, antibiotic resistance. So those two, because there were lots of questions about that, um, you know, every time somebody would post something about having like fish antibiotics on hand, I'm like, you know, uh, those aren't going to work either if we keep, you know, if we keep um, developing resistance to antibiotics. They're, they're the same medication that we're taking, just labeled differently. Um, you might want to look at these herbs over here because they also have antibi antibiotic properties. Mm. And so I would either get responses of, oh, that's really cool, or, oh, herbs don't work. But they do. They're not, herbs are not outside of science. They're not outside of the scientific realm. Herbs are made up of hundreds of different chemical constituents that have physiological impacts on the body. We get some of our, um, you know, most widely used medicines from herbs. Um, I think most, a lot of people are familiar with the fact that um, aspirin, um, you, uh, came from salicin, which you'd find in like white willow bark and a number of other trees, not just willow. Um, but, uh, white willow bark, I think is probably the most well-known, but, but it is in other, in other trees and other plants, um, like meadow sweet and birch and a number of others. But, um, but that's where we got the original form of aspirin from, um, metformin, the most commonly prescribed diabetic drug comes from a chemical found in the plant goat's root, um, Galega officinalis. Um, and 
Oh, there's a bunch of others. Um, Tamiflu, um, the active ingredient there was shikamic acid, which comes from star anise. So there's actually quite a bit of medicine that's out there that originated in botanical medicine, um, you know, and then, of, but it has to go through a process and be tested and this and that. Um, and before anyone says, oh, well, herbs aren't tested or not reliable, there's actually a huge body of scientific information out there if you look for it. The Chinese have done extensive research. Germany has extensive research on um, plant-based medicines. So if, if you go out and you actually seek out the academic sources, it's there. You just have to look for it. So that's how I got into um, prepping and how I ended up starting my website, herbalprepper.com. So that's, well, that's, that's, that's how I arrived here because I got sick of being in forums, typing away furiously, you know, <laughs> say when, when some diabetic would say, well, I'm diabetic, so I'm going to throw my hands up in the air if, you know, we have an emergency that lasts longer than a month. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't have to. I mean, I can't promise you a cure, but I can probably get you to extend that until after the crisis is over. So let's, uh, let's dial that back a bit, you know, and, and I got tired of it. So I started a website and then, you know, sort of took off from there. Yeah. Well, and, and that's news to me because I, I, I really didn't realize that you were an herbalist before you got into prepping. So yes. uh, that's really cool. I thought it was something that you, you started afterwards. I, I want to, oh, no, I want to yeah. go back to one thing you said about when you were thinking about, uh, or the, when you realized all the systems were very fragile yes. uh, and all of that, was there ever a freak out period for you? I mean, if there was, how long did it, how long <laughs> did it, you know, take for you to get out of that and snap out of that? Because I think yeah. a lot of people go through that. When there is a crisis, I'm the personality type that always has a solution. I always find a way. Um, there is sort of a constant mini freak out going on in me at all times, I think. <laughs> it's just always sort of there. But um, I, all my life, I've always just sort of had this ability to come into a situation, analyze it, figure out where the weak points are, where the trouble spots are, and then find a solution or workaround or something. And then after the crisis has been averted, then you have that adrenaline dump and then you have all of that. Um, but um, it's, uh, I'm solution oriented, um, not panic oriented. So um, I can, I can allow all of that stuff to happen after the dangers passed. So um, for me, when all this happened, um, I just went into problem solver mode and just figured, that's why I was like, okay, well, food's expensive. Seeds are cheap. Let's do this. We're just going to do it. Um, and this is the way it is. And um, let me see other, other things that we did. Um, I went out and I bought, I found these wall sconces and I still have them and I still use them now because I just prefer it because it's become my habit now. But I found a bunch of these wall sconces that had mirrors and they, they would light up a bunch of little tea lights. So we had this, so to avoid the use of like um, electric lights and keep the bill down because we couldn't afford the electric, you know, at that time, um, I got, I, because I had, you know, some other crafty skills prior to this, I started making my own tea lights and putting them in there and the mirror sort of. Uh, reflected the light and the heat back into the room. So, you know, we kind of closed off a couple of rooms and it actually, you'd be surprised when you have about like 
20 different tea lights going, how warm that room actually gets yep. when you close it off, you know, like from other rooms in the house. So, um, I mean, I don't close the rooms off in the house, but I just prefer the candlelight now in the evenings because I found that that, like I said, I'm always sort of having a little mini freak out that I found that that sort of um, took some of my general anxiety away. And so I just, I prefer that. And whenever we go up to um, our cabin, which is actually getting a solar and wind combination system this weekend. My husband is there doing that as we speak. So we will have power there, but it's still going to be minimal. But I do prefer that whole natural cycle of, you know, get up when the sun goes up and call it quits when the sun goes down. Um, and then you've got sort of this little window in the evening there where maybe some light is, is, is helpful. But um, I, I found that I, I'm just a whole lot less um, frazzled with that. So I look, I look back at that time and I go, you know, that whole experience actually just improved our lives. We eat a whole lot better now as a result of that. Um, we, um, we, we, we spend a whole lot less money than we used to. Um, and having that peace of mind of having savings and, 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 and such that's, I don't know that you can really put a price tag on that, but um to circle back to something, I, I was an herbalist years before I became a prepper. I, when I was in high school and such, I used to just like, like to do like herbal crafty things. But um, there was one day I was going to go down to uh, Cape Cod, about an hour away from where I currently live. And um, I woke up that day with a horrible, horrible flu. Um, it was really bad. I could barely function. And I called my friend that I was going to go see. Um, she actually owns an herb shop. And she said, okay, not, not a problem. We'll, we'll reschedule. But what do you got in your cabinet? Like your pantry, your fridge, what do you got for herbs? I'm like, I, I have no idea. She's like, you got a grocery store nearby? I'm like, right across the street. I'm like, I'm not going, but I'll send someone. What, what do I need to go? Um, at the grocery store, she had me pick up um, ginger root, um, garlic, and... Um, um, whole cloves, not just garlic, but um, garlic cloves, but whole cloves, like the kind you stick in a ham. Um, let me see, thyme and um, red pepper flakes. And let me see, what else did I put in there? Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, but it was a lot of very pungent, um, spicy kind of, oh, and um, cinnamon sticks. Um, you can order cinnamon chips now. They're more efficient than... Um, the, the cinnamon sticks. So you got to break them up. And um, when you, when you make herbal remedies, you try to get the, uh, either chop them or break them down into small as uh, small pieces as you can, because that'll give more surface area for whatever solvent you're using to extract. So whether that's water or alcohol or vinegar or whatever you're using to extract the chemical constituents with, um, the smaller the pieces are, the better. So um, I did have a friend go pick, all this stuff up and we made a decoction. You put the stuff in, you put all your plant material, your hard plant material. So things like roots, barks, um, seeds, things like that in um, a pot of water. Um, and you're going to bring that to a boil and then you reduce it to a simmer. You let it simmer for 20 minutes. The water will re reduced by half and then you strain everything out and then you're done. Um, I will usually do this in very large batches and then just put it in the fridge because if you're sick, 
probably not going to want to keep doing this over and over and over and over again. That's sort of a pain in the neck. So if you just do it in a big bulk batch, then you've got it, and then you can just reheat it over the next day or two. You don't want to really keep that in the fridge for longer than a few days. It's water. Probably not going to keep even in the fridge. Water, when, whenever water is involved, it can tend to grow things, and so you don't want to do that. But um, a few days is fine. Um, but anyway, I was someone who was always really prone to respiratory infections. If there was a cold or a flu going around, I was one of the first people to get it, and I'll probably get it again before it leaves the area. That was me because I grew up in that era where if you had the sniffles, doctors just prescribed antibiotics to you. And, you know, there was a point, I'll never forget, I went in, they were going to do it, they were going to do a strep test on my throat, and the doctor said, it doesn't really matter. I'm going to give you the antibiotics anyway. Um, it's not going to hurt you if, you t if nothing, if you don't have it, it's not going to hurt you to take them. So we'll just give them to you. Wow. And that was sort of the mindset back in the day. So what I noticed was as time went on, I got sicker more frequently and it would be worse and it took me longer to fight things off. So at this point in time, when my herbalist friend sort of walked me through this, I was in between, I had just taken on a new job and I didn't qualify for health insurance yet. I was still on that 30 day, you know, period there we don't have anything and I was young and I figured I what well, you know I don't really need insurance you know I'm not gonna pay for Cobra from that one month but I got very sick and so anyway normally if I got the flu I was gonna this was like two weeks of me not being functional at all so when I drank this stuff which I I joke around I call demon tea because it'll exercise the demons out of you <laughs> There's no demons involved. It's just it's just an expression. But it made me sweat. It opened up my pores. And I sweat like I have never sweat before. And it just poured out um, these diaphoretic herbs. They just sort of, you know, you, you, they just open up the pores. They're sort of like a, like opening up a window. And, and I felt so much better afterwards. I mean, I was functional. I mean, I wasn't over it. I mean, it still took about a week to you know, kick it out of my system. But for me to be functional the next day, th that was mind blowing to me. So I started to veer away from all my little like arts and crafts with herbs into more medicinal things. And I, uh, this was, so this is like back in my twenties, my early twenties. And I became that friend that when, you know, uh, somebody got sick after their doctor's hours, they would call me and say, hey, Kat, what do you have for this? Or do you know, I've got this weird, like, you know, dry skin patch over here. Do you have anything for that? Oh, my kid's got an earache and, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night and I don't want to go to the ER. You got anything for that? I'm like, yeah, I do. So um, it just sort of evolved from there. I did end up taking an herbal certification course um, with Linda Patterson, um, wonderful herbalist in my area. Um, but that was more just to say that I took a certification course that herbalism is not a regulated sort of a thing. And I know some herbalists who've taken certification courses that are, eh, you know, and I know some that have, you know, just been, you know, with self-study that are amazing herbalists and, and, um, you know, so there's, there's no standard for herbal education, which uh, it's a double-edged sword because sometimes you see things especially on social media, like that sock onion. I've sort of known for my hatred of the sock onion remedy. <laughs> and I, I did a whole rant on YouTube about the, how the sock onion must die. 
um, because people, you know, like for everything, they'll say, oh, just put a, they slice an onion, put it on your feet, put socks on, go to bed, and like it cures like everything. And then when you take it out in the morning, it's going to be black. I'm like, yeah, that's called oxidation. That's, that's why it's black. Um, it didn't suck anything out of you. It's not some type of like weird filter, like a strap on liver, you know, that you, you know, put on the base of your foot. Um, I don't know why anyone would do that, but it's just not how the body detoxifies. It's, if, it's so if you don't have any understanding of physiology and you don't understand how the body detoxifies, maybe, you know, you think, well, maybe that onion will do something. But don't you think that sometimes, I mean, those are old wives tales, right? And people do something like that, but then they've also done all these other things that really do work. And right. so they, they look at the onion in the sock and like, Hey, that must've been it. Right. That, that was and it. Then that they get the placebo it. effect, you know, too, because they believe it so much. And a lot of times people will also try these remedies, especially when it's like with a cold or a flu, by the time they break down and actually try an herbal remedy, they've probably already fought off most of the cold or the virus anyway. So they were, you know, for some of these crazy things that they try. Um, but on the other hand, there's a lot of things that really do help. And one area where herbal medicine does seem to shine um, above and beyond our modern biomedicine, which I'm not against at all. I actually, I think they, they do some amazing things. Like when we're talking about like heroic medicine, these heroic interventions, look, if I'm having a heart attack, don't, take me to the herb shop. I want you to take me to the ER. You do whatever you need to do to keep me alive. Pump me full of whatever you got, do whatever procedures you got. And just, I, and then afterwards I will heal my heart with Hawthorne and a bunch of other things. I'll take care of that then. But, um, but yeah, if I've got the option of, of getting to a higher form of care, if a leg is broken or if I, you know, have an aneurysm or something, you know, it, it has, its uses, it has a lot of wonderful uses, but um, there's also a lot of wonderful uses for herbal medicine and respiratory infections and comfort and relief. I think, I, 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 I mean, I've lived it. I've had so many herbal clients with it. It just, to me, it, it just offers so many other better options. Like you can actually get relief um, without the medicine head and all that. I mean, like I've, I mean, we've all taken over-the-counter decongestants you're still sort of stuffed up, but you're functional. Like you can kind of sort of breathe, but I also have stuff that I can make up that I know I'm going to be actually like really breathing within an hour. So, um, and where I can actually get real relief and comfort for, you know, when you've got like bronchitis and those horrible deep coughs and stuff like that. Um, so I think herbal medicine does have a few more options there. And also, um, with, um, antivirals for respiratory infections. There hasn't, I mean, we've got all this wonderful medicine for like bacterial infections. We've got loads of antibiotics. Haven't spent nearly as much time on antivirals, which, you know, now of course we've got this coronavirus, this COVID-19 circulating the world. So, um, and you know, they're sort of throwing things at it and see, you know, like you throw something at the wall enough, see what sticks. Um, I know that they're trying out a couple of um, very strong antivirals that are used in HIV treatment. There's a combination of two of them that there's, uh, there's no conclusive evidence of whether it's, it works or not yet. Some people have recovered with it, but it's a very small sample size. So you can't say that this works. So, Well, but, I mean, I, you brought up the coronavirus and yeah. I'm, I always try to think ahead 
And so as I'm, as I've been following the coronavirus, it's, it's really, it's really hard for me when I'm talking with other people who uh, are just hearing about what they hear on the news and the news really has just picked it up compared to how long it's, and I say long, it really hasn't been long in, in the whole scheme of things, but mm. I've been following it for a while. And so thinking ahead, we know that there's, there's going to be some disruptions in the global supply. Yeah. I mean, we, I, I follow, um, I think she's, uh, she's a reporter with CNBC and I follow her on Twitter and they were looking at the numbers from China and she even was surprised. I mean, she was expecting yeah. numbers to be low, but she was even surprised at how low they were and just a mm-hmm. lot of things about the global supply breaking down. So I'm thinking, what can people do? And not just for this coronavirus or whatever, but mm-hmm. because we, we know that pharmaceuticals are going mm-hmm. to uh, over-the-counter drugs and, and things like that. There's going to be this, uh, this disruption. So what can people do? And I started thinking about herbal remedies and, of course, all the work yeah. that I've done on Prepper website and thinking about you and, and what you've done. So if, if this was the case, right, and there, yeah. is, there is this global disruption of the supply chain, if people start to pick up herbal medicine or are looking for different options, what do we need to consider moving from, hey, I've never done herbal medicine before, and now I'm going to go ahead and try it? What kinds of things do we really need to be thinking about and considering when we do that? Well, um, oh, there's a lot. So one thing I'd say is um, if you've never made an herbal remedy before, um, it can seem very simple, and and it is. I mean, but it's also um, very science based too. If you put herbs in in water, there are certain um, or in, into alcohol or into vinegar or in oil, um, there are chemicals that will be extracted um, that will then transfer to whatever solvent you're using, or menstruum. I think is. Uh, I mean, they both mean the same thing, but. Um, when you when you start making them, it, it may seem very simple, but um, you've got water soluble constituents, you've got fat soluble constituents, and you've got alcohol soluble constituents and some acid um, soluble. Con- is, is, is some there are some herbs that you want to add a little acid to in order to extract them. So um, it's not that complicated to make a cup of tea. So that's a great place to start. And especially with respiratory infections, there's, you also bring in the whole, like, um, the whole element of steam and hydration when you're, when you're drinking tea. Um, it just makes you feel better. It'll, it just, you know, it sort of soothes you and, and soothes a lot of the aches and pains just by having something hot. So, I mean, it's the same sort of effect that you get when you have like chicken soup from that too. So, um, teas are very easy to make. Um, you know, if you are making a tea with, um, I, would, I, I already talked about a decoction. So that's, that's a water extraction. That's a tea. Um, and that's how you would, um, make it with hard plant material. If you're dealing with flowers or leaves or delicate plant parts, um, usually, um, a lot of the above ground parts, um, are delicate. Um, then you would just make like a cup of tea. Um, so what I do is I, I have, I make, if it's medicinal, I tend to make it a little stronger. Um, if someone's sick, I'll make it in a larger batch. Um, I usually get a Mason jar and I'll fill it about a quarter of the way with my dried plant material. And I will pour water that 
is just boiling. I don't, I don't like a big full rolling boil with delicate plant parts. Um, it's not how I was taught. Um, but I, I mean, I would for, um, the, uh, the um, hard plate material, but not with the delicate stuff. But I'll pour that in to cover up, you know, to fill the um, mason jar. And a lot of preppers have mason jars kicking around. And um, cover it, and then I'll let it steep. I'll let it steep for a long time. So maybe an hour, maybe four hours, or something like that. So this isn't necessarily going to taste the same way. Like if you sit down, like, oh, I'd love a cup of peppermint tea, you know. Um, I mean, certainly you can, if, if this is your first step to do it, you, you might do that. So maybe you go to the grocery store and, um, you know, you can find a number of ready-made herbal teas for a whole bunch of things. So like, um, uh, like uh, blends like throat coat or something like, like that. Mm -hmm. um, it, those things can be uh, very easy ways to introduce herbal medicine into your life. So I think part of the barrier there is just, you know, um, is learning how to make these remedies. Um, because once you learn them, they're not that difficult. But if you've never done them, it can seem intimidating, but they can be very, very, very simple. Um, I think another uh, thing with getting into herbal medicine for preparedness is that you should take a look at what your personal biggest concerns are. When you're talking about um, disruptions and shipping, I don't think a lot of people realize that almost all of our medications are manufactured in China. So um, and our medical supplies are manufactured in China. I do. Th I think we've got like one plant in India where we make medicine. I'm not sure, but there's there, the bulk of them are made in China. So we would see disruptions, um, just a lack of supply because, you know, unfortunately, so many people are sick. So I would look at what what is that specific individual dealing with? And there's going to be a lot of people, and it's concerning me because the CDC on their website states that one in every two Americans, American adults, have a chronic illness. Um, a chronic illness, so they have some type of pre-existing condition. And COVID-19 gets far more serious when you have, you know, these comorbidities of diabetes, um, heart disease, hypertension, um, kidney disease, things like that. So. Um, I mean, obviously some of these people, some adults here in this group are also people with arthritis. I don't think arthritis is going to be a complicating factor to COVID-19, but, um, some of these other things and diabetes, um, is, is a big one. Um, um, but that and heart disease and kidney disease, um, there's a lot of that in this country. So I would be looking at how do I, I would not want to be without my medicine for those types of things with COVID-19 circulating around. Um, so, um, I, I would look to that. If you have any chronic illness, what might be an option for that? And, and try to get that from a very reliable source. Um, and then after, after dealing with those, those sort of immediate things, you know, you've got your typical things that you might want in a first aid kit. You know, you're going to want something for pain relief. You're going to want something for something that would be, let's say, uh, for skin infections. Um, that you could apply topically. One thing about herbal medicine that's a little different um, is that it's best to put the herb right where the affected tissue is. So if you've got, um, let's say you had some type of a cut or something um, that looked to be infected, you, you're going to want to put some type of um, a wound powder on it or honey. Um, we keep bees. I'm a 
big fan of using honey for loads of things. I'm a very lucky herbalist because honey is very expensive. I don't have to buy it. So I've got my supply of honey covered. Um, but you can use honey. Um, that That's like a first aid kit in and of itself. You've got burn care right there. You've got um, something that'll uh, wound care. You've got something for sore throats. Um, it's, it's wonderful stuff. So, um, but you want to put the herbal medicine where, you know, where the affected tissue is. In other words, um, they, they work best locally as opposed to systemically. Well, I shouldn't say that because there's a whole other class of herbs that does work systemically. So, um, but let's say for a respiratory infection, things like herbal steams or inhaling essential oils or something where you are bringing the plant medicine directly into the respiratory system is going to be, um, you're going to be using those herbs more effectively that way. Um, let me see. So some things that, that would be more systemic would be something like taking um, white willow bark for, for overall pain or um, something where you take, uh, let's say, turmeric on a daily basis because it's anti-inflammatory and you're, and you're lowering overall inflammation. So there, there are some things that are systemic. I'm not saying that all herbs you know, have to be applied directly to a specific location, but for things that are infectious, definitely, you know, that's, that's um, better if you can apply it directly to that site. Um, so that's a little different because um, we're so used to just taking a pill for everything. Um, so sometimes we might have to try um, topicals. Sometimes we might have to um, do a lot of inhalations of things. Um, let me see what else. Well, I, I think you brought this up. I mean, that's that's really important because when people start thinking about herbal medicine, there's so many different uses. Like you were talking about, there's the you know the the easy entry into it is the tea, being yeah. able to do that. The steam. I don't think people think about the steam and getting that into your system. Uh, yeah. Because we're so used to popping a pill, like you said, uh, you know, taking some kind of uh, a pill, a syrup or something like that and getting it inside. But we don't always think about the steam and whatever, right. you know, all the, and, and I don't even know the proper terminology, but everything that's in that steam going in and uh -huh. affecting our respiratory system. I mean, right. if you can catch the, the flu or other viruses by just droplets and what's in the air, I mean, it does make sense that the steam of whatever herbal herbal uh, remedy you're 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 heating up would also affect the, affect us okay. positively. So, where what are some others? Because you know I, I can understand the frustration of herbal medicine, or at least people that are looking this up is like, okay, how do I really use this? I mean, I, I know you know I, I'm sure you've seen the list. This herb will you know take care of this? Like, but how how do you actually right. use it. You've talked about tea, you've talked about steam, you've talked about decoctions using water. There's a couple of others that I know of that I always hear, but yeah. can, and maybe you can talk about those briefly and then okay. uh, any, any that I'm missing. But uh, when we start talking about, um, uh, we start talking about tinctures, right? You know, yeah. wh why would we use a tincture and, and, and what would be uh, a reason why we would use that versus an infusion and why okay. would we use that, you know? Yeah. Uh, can so, you speak to a little oh, yeah. speak to that? Yeah, so a lot of it is also just um, the individual herb itself. Um, I like using mullein leaf um, in tea 
more so than making a tincture out of it because it's sort of a pain in the neck to make a tincture out of it. It's a very fluffy material and um, I can just put it in a tea for that. Um, it, 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 it takes up a lot of space and it just, you know, I, I don't care to tincture it. But tinctures are wonderful. They will deliver medicine very, very quickly. Um, they, um, they will, they have a long shelf life. That's another great reason for it. So let's say you've got, you know, you, you, you dry your herbs and, and I'm saying that you dry them yourself as opposed to buying them only because, um, from the time they're dried to about a year, you can sort of consider that we're going to talk about like, um, shelf life here. Um, you got about a year. And so sometimes, you know, when you buy herbs, um, if you get it from a, you know, a reputable herb shop, you know, that has a good turnover, then, then fine. But sometimes herbs will sit like, sometimes I get a little cautious about, let's say ordering them from, uh, I, I, well, I mean, I can't say that I've, I've gotten some good herbs off of Amazon and places like that. I can't, so I'm not going to say that it's all like that, but sometimes, you know, some of the herbs that you get, they might've been sitting on the shelf for a while. You don't know how long they've been on the shelf at the store. Um, so um, that's one thing. But anyway, if, if about a year, you got a shelf life of dried herbs before they really start to lose their potency. And that's assuming that you've stored them properly. But let's say now you're getting to it's about six months or so, three quarters of a year or so, and you want to preserve them. Um, I, I will, well, the moment my herbs start to get a little older, I start tincturing them because they're still within that year, they are still, um, vital and whatnot. And I will, um, pop them in some vodka or I'll take my Everclear and water it down to get the exact, um, amount of alcohol versus water because what vodka is, you know, alcohol and water. So it's, you're getting both alcohol and water in in that um, to make an extraction. So um, I know I, I was supposed to do this quickly here. Now I'm going to go off on a tangent on, on how to make tinctures. But anyway, so the reason I would love tinctures, let me just get, let me get back to this here, is that they've got a great shelf life. Um, they, they're not going to spoil. If you've made them correctly, they're not going to spoil that alcohol. As long as it's 20% alcohol by volume, you can preserve whatever it is, whether that's um, that's too low for me for, for, for tinctures, but um, let's say you wanted to preserve something like um, like what they use in Germany, they, when they use echinacea, they use echinacea purpurea, and what they'll do is they'll juice the entire plant and they preserve it with alcohol, so 20% alcohol by volume. Tinctures are, are generally not made with that little alcohol, they're made with much more, but um, because they are preserved, they're not going to spoil. Um, however, that doesn't mean that they have an indefinite shelf life as far as um, efficacy. At some point, maybe five years, maybe eight years, I, I don't know, somewhere in that ballpark, um, you'll start to see little flecks in them. And so the, the, those are the chemical constituents migrating back out of the solvent. So it's still in there. It's still viable, but, um, but now it's not in dilution anymore it's starting to come out of dilution so you can try and shake the bottle a bit maybe sort of distribute it a bit but you're never going to get it to go back in so at that point but you know it's sort of i i wouldn't i generally don't have tinctures laying around that long so um so, but if i do see that then then i dump it but um 
but I like tinctures because they store well and they can deliver very easily measured medicine with the number of drops that you put in. Um, and they are very fast acting. So they, they will get into the system and, and work very well. Um, so it can make, um, tincture making can make uh, remedies um, that are tailored to a particular person very easily can combine them. So you can put all these various plants together all at once and make this sort of a blend, or you can make all individuals they're called singles, and then you can then blend the singles together. You get very creative with them. Um, and they're, tinctures are very easy to make. I mean, you can make them very complicated if you want, but the most basic thing, you, again, my mason jar, herbalists have tons of mason jars everywhere. Um, in this case, you would fill the mason jar with plant material, um, and then you'd just pour your vodka over it. Now, one thing I'll say is that if you're using dried plant material, then you're going to want to use some combination of alcohol and water. So either vodka, which is simple for most people, and it's um, vodka is usually 40% alcohol, 60% water. A lot of herbs are best extracted with 60% alcohol and 40% water, so just the exact opposite of that. But vodka gets really close, and most people don't have well, I don't want to say most people, a lot of people. There are certain states where something like Everclear rain alcohol is not sold, so vodka is it. Um, but I would use that with dried plant material. If you're using fresh plant material, you can either let it wilt a little bit to let some of that moisture go, um, but, that's, but you don't want to do that with certain herbs. But um, I'll, I'll get to an exception in a moment. But Normally, you would take the fresh plant material and you would put in straight grain alcohol because there's water in the plants. And when you put it in something like grain alcohol, you're extracting both um, the alcohol soluble constituents and some of that water from the plant because and when with the water comes the water soluble constituents. So um, the end result in your tincture from the fresh plant material will have a water content that didn't exist before, if that makes any sense. Yeah, uh, so the only reason why I'm bringing that up is because you don't want it to spoil. So, um, so sometimes if you've got like a really juicy plant that's got lots of fluid in it um, and you use a weak vodka, you might see spoilage, maybe. Um, so that's why I bring that up. But for the most part, it vodka is fine. And so all you would do is you fill up the jar with plant material, you fill it with vodka, and you just let it sit for six weeks, go by every day and shake it up a little bit. Um, if you don't remember to shake it every day, it's not a crisis. The tincture police aren't going to show up at the house and say, oh, you can't use this now. But there, it does make for a better tincture if you do remember to give it a little shake. Do you, do you need to cover the mason jar with cheesecloth or, or you're just covering it with just a lid? I just cover it with a lid. You don't okay. need to, it doesn't need to be exposed to air. You're not making a fermentation. So okay. um, you just put a lid on it. And then what I, what I do to strain it, um, so I'll, I'll usually just put the bulk of it through just like a big mesh strainer. Um, and then, you know, obviously save, you know, move the liquid to something else. Um, but then you still got a lot of liquid trapped in that, in, in the plant material. Um, so get a couple of options. Um, you, you can um, take like a potato ricer because it's sort of like a vice and you can like squeeze mm -hmm. it out. Um, 
I, I have um, one of those jelly strainer things, like a little tripod sits on top of a container and it's got um, like a little muslin bag that, you know, it'll just keep dripping. So after I've strained it out, if I'm feeling lazy, I'll just put it in my jelly strainer and um, maybe at the very end, squeeze out that bag just to get the rest of it. Cause that's where a lot of the very concentrated uh, tincture is in there. And then I'll put that back in there. You can also then take that tincture that you made and add fresh plant material to it and give it another round. If you want to make it a little stronger, you can go through that process again, but you're going to, it's going to take between two to six weeks to make a tincture with that method. Now there's, there are other methods to make them faster, but um, that's the easiest. That's the easiest thing to do. Just let them sit in alcohol, let them soak for six weeks. Um, you can make a percolation um, tincture, um, which is a little different and you got to, you know, get your herbs, powder them up. And basically you're, you're letting alcohol drip through it and you can have a tincture ready in a couple of days as opposed to a few weeks, but that's a bit more of an involved, um, an involved process. Um, and you need more special equipment like a percolation cone and, and stuff for that, but it can be done. So, um, other things that you can make are infused oils. Um, and you know, if you've got a crock pot, you can, uh, and you're going to make sure that every crock pot's different and it, you're going to make sure that it's going to, if you have a warm setting and your warm setting is not going to cook the oil, you got to keep checking it. Um, I've got one crock pot that does this beautifully and another one that if I use it, it's going to, it, it's, you're going to smell like toasted herbs in the house afterwards. Mm -hmm. So I don't use that one, but, um, but if you've got one on a warm setting and you watch it, um, you can just fill your crock pot with herbs and then um, cover it with oil and just let it go for a few days. Um, another option if your crock pot is not going to um, allow for that very slow warming um, is you can, um, again, with the mason jars, you can fill them up with pint jars, put your pint jars filled with herbs um, and put a little cover on that because otherwise water is going to get up to the lid of the crock pot and then drip down into it. And you don't want to be adding water to this. Um, again, spoilage just, but you know, especially with oil, it, it'll go rancid. You don't want to do that. Um, so you'd cover that, um, put your mason jars in your crock pot, fill the crock pot about halfway with water, and then you can put it on. Um, and it'll gently warm it up. And when you add heat to this, it speeds up the extraction of um, these various plant chemicals into oil. So that's another way to speed that up. Otherwise, you're going to be, again, letting that sit for somewhere between two to six weeks. Um, and these infused oils, you can use those for all kinds of things. You can use those for salves, uh, uh, lotions, um, soap making. Um, you know, or just, a, or using as a massage oil, um, a lot of aches and pains can be relieved that way. Um, so I'm trying to think of other things for people to know getting into. That's, that's really interesting. And I, I like the, um, the, just the easy entry of the, the tincture. I mean, that's, yeah. that's anybody can do that. Oh, um, anybody can. Yeah. So you, um, you do that and you extract all the, the material, right? You have the tincture. How do you take it? You're taking a, a teaspoon, a tablespoon, a couple of drops. What do you, I mean? This is where you're going to have to do a little bit of research. Um, I hate to give like a standard dose, but 
if you were to buy commercially made tinctures, they always have a standardized dose, a suggested dosage that they uh, or suggested use. And, and, and the standard dosage you'll see on most of these range somewhere between 30 drops to about 60 drops, two to three or maybe four times a day, depending on the individual herb. Um, I prefer to go by the individual and um, because I know people who will take the standard dose and they don't feel anything. Um, and, and other people who take it and, um, you know, they, they're, they've got, uh, it's hitting them hard. Um, so like, especially, um, and then there are some herbs, you know, um, that, that are just going to, you know, they're going to respond differently. People like valerian, I think it's about 10% of the population or so. It has the exact opposite effect as far as making you sleepy or tired. So for most people, valerian will sort of knock you out. If you, but it's but it it's individually dosed. It, it, some people have to take a whole lot of it. Other people like five drops of it and they're out like a light. It's very individual. So um, you might want to experiment with things ahead of time. Um, other you know tinctures you might uh, the other ten percent of the population if they take valerian will become very wide awake. So. That would be something rather than, and, and I think this is an important point. If you're going to be looking at adding herbal medicine as a prep, don't do like what you do with some things and just buy stuff and store it and never try it and wait for an emergency to try it because you have no idea how that specific herb is going to impact you, you as an individual, you know, um, it, we are not, I, I'm not a fan of standardized anything when it comes to healthcare. So um, I don't even think that, you know, there's one right diet for everybody. I think diets can be very um, remedial. They, they, can, they can be used as medicine and not everybody's body is doing the same things or has the same needs for that. So that, I think that's why some people feel so much better when they go vegan and other people feel so much better when they go full on carnivore. Is I think what's whatever's going on in their body is not necessarily the same thing going on with someone else. So, um, and I think it's the same with herbal medicine that some, and, you know, especially when you see, and I, and I know that in my herbal book, I do have a lot of like lists of things. And I did that for convenience and it's, you know, you'll find these lists in a lot of books where, let me see, I've got some like that are analgesics. And I, and I tried to use terms that, people would be familiar with from biomedicine. So things like anti-inflammatories, analgesics, and antispasmodics, antimicrobials, you know, things like that. Um, and that's all well and good. I do have lists to make it easy for you. But of all of those different plants, some are going to be more appropriate for you than others. And some of them on that list, so like when people say, oh, herbal medicine doesn't work, I tried it and it didn't work for me. I'm like, well, what did you try? You know, like, you know that there are like 30 other different options that all grow around you like wild that might have actually helped better than the particular one you found. Um, and then, of course, you know, not only is it picking the right herb, but also potency is, is an issue, too. Um, you know, uh, there, wild plants tend to be far more vigorous and potent than their cultivated, you know, cousins. Mm -hmm. So wild nettle. Is going to be more potent than nettle that you grew from a seed and so on. But however, the flip side to that is if you're growing your own, maybe they're not as potent as their wild 
relatives, but you still have control over them and you can make sure that you have them as opposed to just hoping that some random plant in some part of the woods, you know, is going to have a big enough patch for you to harvest that year. And then someone else isn't going to come by and just, you know, take it all because that's, that's another problem when you, when you rely on foraging and, and well, in herbalism, they call it wild crafting, not foraging, but whatever. It's the same thing. You go out in the woods, you find your stuff or go out wherever, not just the woods. I mean, you can find a lot of weeds in your backyard, but um, when you go out and you look for these wild plants, um, some people are, res are responsible in, in how they do it and some people are not. So you may not be able to count on that population of wild plants always being there. Um, you also may want to have a backup anyway, because maybe you have a year that is not conducive to that particular plant growing. So you might want to have some stored up. Um, you might want to have um, your own garden with those in there too. So there's, there's that aspect. Um, oh, there was something else I was going to say about. Um, well, while, while you're thinking about that, let me break yeah. in here just for a second. Yeah. Um, I was thinking, so to give people an idea, because what I hear you saying is everyone can, um, everyone can respond differently to herbs. So yeah. uh, I'm going to go to the tincture route or even the, the, the tea, the tea route, I think would be easy, right? Yeah. I mean, you can, you can uh, drink tea, you know, two or three times a day, whatever, but the tincture, let's, let's just talk about that and trying to yeah. find the optimal dosing for something like that. Um, what, what I think I hear you say is they need to take a little bit of time, be, be purposeful about how they're taking it. Maybe even, write things down oh, yeah. and like, Hey, I'm, I've, I've taken 30 drops of this and mm -hmm. I don't really feel any kind of effect. I'm going to take 60 drops the next time. I'm right. going to take this two or three times a day. Uh, two times a day really works for me. Three times a day is too much or four right. times a day or whatever. And so there needs to be a little bit of figuring all of that out yeah. as you, as you're doing it to, to find the, just like you, again, going back to the dieting that you were saying, you, you know, you need to figure out which one is working for you. You don't just throw the whole thing out because it didn't work. You created this tincture right. for six weeks and you didn't get any effect on the first, you know, 30 drops right. and then it, that's it. It doesn't work. So right. th there's a little bit. Can you give any advice quickly? You know, any yeah, advice sure. on that? Yeah. So I would, I will one, do a little research on the plant because certain herbs, they're considered low dose herbs. So like something like lobelia um, often gets a lot of warnings, but um, because, uh, it, well, if you don't, you don't need to, if a low dose will work, you don't need to take a whole lot more. Um, so that there's that end of things, but, um, some herbs just work better, uh, you know, on those lower doses. But what I would do is I would find out whatever the standard dose is for that herb in my book. I do include a lot of that. So that's where I'd start. I would start with whatever the standard dose is for that particular herb. And I would adjust from there. Um, so, but at least you have a baseline to start with. So, um, something like lobelia, I might start off with like 10 drops of it and just see what happens. Um, now when you're saying 10 drops, am I putting that in a tea? Am I putting it straight under my tongue? Am I dropping it in my mouth? What, what am I doing? Oh, a, you can do any number of ways. Um, um, with, um, lobelia, the, the reason why I'm bringing it up is because, um, I use that a lot with, um, asthma clients when they're having um, an asthma attack. Um, so when they start to feel that coming on, it's, Lobelia is an antispasmodic and it's going to calm down the, um, the bronchial spasms that they're experiencing. Um, 
but again, you, you, I want to try that, that, you know, I want to try and use the least amount necessary. So I might, I might give in that situation, um, lobelia maybe directly under the tongue, um, and just, and, and just hold it there for a few minutes and then, and, and then, um, that'd be it. If, but then the second dose that I make, if they needed one, I might be making a tea, you know, with mullen or, or, or I might be preparing something like that while we're waiting to see how those first 10 drops of lobelia worked. And then I might add that tincture to the tea. Um, and lobelia is also one of those herbs that you're going to want to add a little bit of apple cider vinegar because it needs a little acid to extract it. And um, you're also going to want to use it as a tincture and not tea. Um, and you can put the tincture in a tea, but don't make a tea from lobelia because when taken in tea form, it's emetic. So it's going to make you vomit. So that might be helpful if you've consumed something poisonous, but um, and it's not going to, I mean, one sip of tea isn't going to do it, but um, if you have a cup or two cups or something, again, individual, but it, it'll induce vomiting. Um, I take it as a tincture. It's got a very peppery, strong flavor, but you're not going to get sick from that. So, um, but I would, my second dose, cause I do have someone close to me that's an asthmatic. And so the second dose I would probably put in a tea because a lot of times just that hot liquid will help. Or I might put it in a cup of coffee because caffeine, it's, this is plant medicine still. Um, it, a lot of times a hot cup of coffee will bring someone out of an asthma attack. So coffee is actually part of my, supplies for asthmatics for people with migraines and 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 you know so on and so forth i also think it'll be a great barter item because you know if supplies do end up becoming that disruptive you know how many people are gonna be walking around with caffeine withdrawal headaches and they're oh, yeah. miserable they're absolutely miserable i had a, i had a more miserable time coming down off of um well i mean i still drink coffee but when i reduced the amount of coffee um the, the headache was worse um, then when I quit smoking, I had a much easier time quitting cigarettes than I did quitting coffee, wow. as, as you can see, because I'm still drinking it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, anyway. one of the things that I've been doing is uh, trying to cut it, right? I've been cutting my coffee with uh, yeah. a little bit of decaf. Um, that's very interesting because I never thought about putting something, uh, a tincture inside of coffee. Mm -hmm. I never thought about that. Um, there was a hot echinacea tincture that I used to make during mm -hmm. and you know again you're you're thinking ahead of time so you're getting ready for cold and flu season so you're you're making this mm -hmm. ahead of time and then using it and I would always put it in a tea and, and drink mm -hmm. it that way but I mean it was yeah. really spicy but I never yeah. thought about putting it in a coffee so that's uh that's pretty interesting um you know you're you've, you're talking about a lot of different herbs as well that I'm not very familiar with uh, I'm assuming uh, I have looked at your book but yeah. for those that are listening, your book is going to take care of a lot of this, right? It's going to share a lot of information there on the is. herbs that you're, you're talking about. Yeah, there, there is. I will say one thing. Um, my herbal book, my, my publisher, um, is having a little trouble keeping Amazon stocked with, with books at the moment. So um, they, I know that they're going to email me soon to say when there are more hard copies out, because I know that lots of preppers like the hard copies right now. I think the only thing on Amazon, I'm going to check right now to see if maybe that's changed, but I know that the Kindle version 
is available, but uh, and you're talking about Prepper's Natural Medicine. Prepper's Natural Medicine. Well, there, there. I have three books. Right. I have Prepper's Natural Medicine, um, and that covers it. Covers quite a bit um, for um, infections um, to help heal broken bones for remedies like poison ivy, burns, migraines, allergies, flu. Um, I think there's like 50 different herbs that I cover in in a lot of detail. Um, I mean, and it was hard to limit. Um, it was very hard to limit myself to 50 herbs. That was, that was difficult. Um, I could have gone on um, much, much more than that. Um, let me see here. I'm looking on Amazon for my book. Have they restocked it yet? If not, it should be soon. I have another book, um, Prepping for a Pandemic. I, that has been out of print because um, it wasn't selling so great because it, this was, well, we hadn't had a pandemic. And, and unfortunately, pandemics are one of those things that preppers just don't want to look at. I don't know why. They have an aversion to looking at pandemics. Um, they're not, um, I guess, I guess it's because, you know, when they happen, they happen so infrequently. And most people can't think in recent memory when there was a pandemic that impacted them personally here in the United States. Pandemics are things or, or, you know, an outbreak of infectious disease. It happens over there, somewhere else, to some other group of people. Third world countries. Right, uh, right. Third world countries. Yeah, but, but you know, um, the China, you know, is there's, there's massive population density. Um, you know, Wuhan, uh, China has, I, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember. It's 11, 11 million it's 11, people. Yeah, it was 11 million people. It, I mean, New York City is only like eight and a half. Nine million, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, and that's just one city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, and they're and they're crammed in there. And it's the it, the um, population density matters for a pandemic. I mean, it, there, you can't get away from it. Look what happened on those cruise ships. You know, when you're in a closed population, so a cruise ship, nursing homes, schools, colleges, uh, um, trying to think, prisons, closed populations. When there's an outbreak of something. Good luck. You're not, you're, it's, you're far more likely to catch something. Um, It's unfortunate, but, you know, it it is what it is. So, um, I mean, there's a reason why they're locking down the cities in China and they're, they're keeping people away from talking to each other. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you had mentioned, you mentioned the pandemic and there's, I think normalcy bias is very much in effect right now from oh, all the people that really I talk to, talk to and, and, and different people. Some people are starting to wake up, but there's still a lot of that because yeah. they can't, we haven't had anything here since right. 1900. And so, so when I wrote, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. When I wrote prepping for a pandemic, that was inspired by the Ebola outbreak. And, but the book's not about Ebola. And I'm, so I'm thinking maybe that was a confusion there, but what I did in it though, is, you know, looking at the entire thing, um, what could we learn from it? Like, how did governments respond? How did, you know, like, how do they respond at a national level, at a local level? How did they, how did the people respond? How, you know, what happened when people were put in quarantines? What happened when, you know, clinics and hospitals reached surge capacity and they had to turn people away? What happened when doctors were saying, hey, uh, I'm not risking my life going in, you know, to deal with this disease? You know, what happened when, you know, hospital staff who did go to work, they became ill. And so there, there's a lot of things that we can actually look back and say, okay, this is how a pandemic plays out. 
Um, this is how, um, and a pandemic is just an epidemic that has crossed a border. It's gone to another country and now it's circulating freely in another country. Um, I don't know why there's such, I mean, I, I mean, I get it. There's certain tech, there's more technical details before they come out and play a pandemic. But I mean, at this point, we should be calling COVID-19 a pandemic at this point. But with Ebola, when it went, uh, you know, from across borders, it became a pandemic. Um, we, we had a lot of opportunity to see how different countries responded. We also had an opportunity to see how our country responded and what our, how our media responded. And, you know, the moment uh, our former president, Obama, put his task force together and declared his Ebola czar, appointed that guy. Yeah, Reigns had no background in infectious disease, no background in health. He was a Fannie Mae lobbyist. He was known for being able to cut through red tape. And after he was appointed to lead this task force, um, you saw Ebola drop out of the media. I'm a little concerned now because now we have another task force to get ready for COVID-19 and all government health officials have to run their statements by Vice President Pence. Mm -hmm. um, we're in an election year. Pandemics are not good for politicians in charge during an election year. So I'm concerned about how the, you know, how our, you know, government's going to be managing the information coming out. Um, I think probably one of the only, if, if we follow what happened um, in um, 2014 with Ebola, we should just see a drop in media coverage. Um, but our media and this particular president haven't really gotten along, so they may press the issue. I don't, it, it, so for someone who's interested in pandemics, I'm kind of like curious to see how all this plays out. But for as a prepper who's concerned about it, I'm concerned about getting accurate information. I'm concerned about um, China not providing real numbers. Mm -hmm. they, they were slow to respond with SARS. Um, they were slow to be um, forthcoming with information. And just culturally, and this is not... Um, this is not a value judgment on them, but as a culture, it is deeply ingrained that they're quite secretive and their government's quite secretive. And that's just part of who they are. Um, and unfortunately, and, and, I mean, th there are times where that's, that works to their benefit. But in this case, it complicates this issue greatly if they're not being forthcoming. And there have been a lot of um, news sources as well as bloggers who have been paying attention to this and following this, um, whereas mainstream media really hasn't. So um, I'm not saying that they're fudging the numbers. I'm just saying that um, if, if you're going by their official numbers, you have to decide whether or not you feel that you can trust the Chinese government in general. So um, you got to make your own judgment on that one. But um, with my prepping for a pandemic book, um, I looked at everything that went on with Ebola and, and what happened um, with, with how everybody responded to that in order to get ready for the next one. Because, you know, I know there's lots of scenarios that preppers get ready for um, that may never happen. Pandemics are going to happen. They're historically proven they're going to happen. And they're scary. And they're really scary because, I mean, if this is a virus, you can't see it. You can't identify an enemy. You can't say, okay, 
that's somebody coming to take my food storage. I know what to do. You know, it's not like that kind of threat. You know, it's, it's um, like an economic collapse. You sort of know what to do to prepare for that, you know, pay off your debts, you know, have some money aside, have your, you know, your supplies. Not, we, we sort of can wrap our brains around that. But a virus or a bacteria, antibiotic resistance, did you know that we have um, some strains of tuberculosis that are completely, totally antibiotic resistant? Mm. That's scary. I mean, people think of tuberculosis, they think of like consumption, they think of like Victorian era, you know, people wasting away, you know, in bed or something. Um, that's like a thing of the past. Uh, no, it's not. It's actually very active. It's very active in India. It's very active in Pakistan. It's very active in South and Central America. So we do have cases of tuberculosis in the U.S. every year. They usually come in from outside and it doesn't really get to spread. It's it. All right. Hey, uh, we had a little bit of a connection error there, uh, but uh, I think you were talking about tuberculosis. Well, so yeah, you- and um, yeah, tuberculosis. And, and, none of, and so my my second book, Prepping for a Pandemic, um, I, I looked at what happened with Ebola, but then I got into a number of um, other things like um, that I thought would be most likely to be the next great pandemic. So like what were the biggest risks as I saw them? The number one being influenza, the next one being tuberculosis. Um, and But I also had coronaviruses in there. Um, you know, we've seen SARS already and now we've had MERS and now we're at COVID-19. Um, so um, I'm really hoping I was wrong. It's just Say I'm, I'm hoping that I was wrong and that this will turn out to be a big nothing deal. Um, but um, it, it was on my radar back in 2012. So um, it, the book was out of print. It's coming back into print. It should be available um, in about two and a half weeks from when, when I was talking with my publisher. Um, it is still available on Kindle right now, but if you wanted a hard copy, it is coming back. I do have confirmation that it is coming back for that. But pandemics, I, I, I think you're very, very right that, you know, the normalcy bias kicks in. And it's one of those unfathomable things. You can't really wrap your brain around that there's this unseen secret pillar out there and, and you know, it's going to disrupt everything um there's a there's a wonderful um book um it's fiction um the jarkata pandemic um oh gosh of course now it's, it's one of my favorite books and now the author's name escapes me now i feel absolutely horrible but um the jarkata pandemic it, it's an in, it's an influenza pandemic that starts over in asia and spreads around the world i particularly like it because it, the most of it's set in maine and that's where my secondary location is at. So I'm, I, I'm looking at I'm like, yep, I can see that happening. Yep, that would happen. That would be the, where they drive. That would be how they'd go. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's, it, but it deals with that, this same kind of a thing. Uh, but I think, I, I just think it's a very scary thing for a lot of people. And I'm, and you know, when I post things online and I see like some of the pushback, like, oh, this is nothing. It's just like a cold. I'm like, it might be, maybe, for some people, but it may not be. And, you know, if you take a look at, and it, if you take a look at China, you know, there's going to be other problems. There's going to be financial, economic, um, there's going to be supply, um, supply issues, and that's going to complicate a whole bunch of other things. So let's say if we've got most of our medical supplies and medicines coming from China, so now we look at how do we treat people here when supplies run out? 
And that's exactly why I had you, had you come on just because of that, right? Well, you do have, since we were talking about your books, you do have another yeah. book that just recently came out. Yes. Uh, can you, you want to talk about that just a little bit? Yes. So this is um, the Wuhan Coronavirus Survival Manual. Um, and what I did with this is um, another prepper friend of mine, Daisy Luther from The Organic Prepper, and she's like my prepping BFF. We chat every day and whatnot. We kept chatting back and forth and, and writing some articles on this when this first came out because she was like, hey, Kat, eh, there's a, you know, this is a disease sort of thing, pandemic maybe. This is your territory. You want to shed some, you know, you got some insight on this. So we started, you know, writing some articles on it. And um, I, I tend to go to either scholarly articles for things. Um, also, I'll go to like medical journals. Um, I'll, there's um, a couple of different um, websites where you can um, find a lot of medical journals for free. There's PubMed. There's also um, uh, Med Medrics. I, I, I've got the link in the book. Um, I can't think of it off. I, it's saved on my computer. I, I can't think of it off the top of my head. Um, where where um, studies that are are done but they have not been peer reviewed yet get get posted um they're not peer reviewed so um and, and you know peer review looks at the you know the study methods and things like that make sure that you know the conclusions are um what they you know what they ought to be that there wasn't some uh, big failure somewhere along the line but if if you get a little savvy at reading these things you can sort of um figure that out on your own if it's a good study or not um but you know, I found some really interesting things doing that. Um, there was um, a study published um, online on the Lancet um, showing that the um, patient zero over there, the very first person to have this, was not connected at all in any way to the um, to the market that everybody's been saying, oh, it started in this market where they've got these wild animals and they're selling fish and they want to blame it on the Chinese culture of these markets. Um, actually, patient zero had nothing to do with that and showed up in the hospital a couple of weeks before that cluster of 41 people ever popped up on the radar. This other patient came in a couple of weeks earlier and had nothing to do with it. So that suggests that there's a completely different origin, that, that's, that it didn't come from the market. Um, so I thought that was very interesting. And, and the other thing is, um, I understand things like case fatality rate and, um, you know, there are a lot of statistics that, that are thrown out there now. So what, what I tried to do in this book was to go to reliable sources because there's so much misinformation getting circled around. I love a good conspiracy theory along with, the, with everybody else, but it's a theory. It's not provable. Um, and when we are, when, when we're prepping for something, you need to have very good information. You need to have rock solid information, or at least as best as you can get. And I was seeing things that, you know, like I mentioned the sock onion, I've been getting messages on my website, like, did you know that, it, you know, you can put a cut onion in the room and it will get rid of, uh, it'll, it'll cure SARS or something. Maybe it'll work for this. No, a cut onion did not cure SARS to anybody. So stop. <laughs> Just stop with that. It didn't, trust me, oh, if we only had, you know, an onion, maybe none of those, like 700 people would have died of SARS. Who would have thought? But, um, but it's that kind of thing. So I wanted to go to solid sources, um, go to um, trackers and actually get the hard data. 
and try to put together a picture of, is this a real risk or not? So it was part of this was a mental exercise that this is a risk assessment. Um, I also cover a lot of what is a coronavirus, you know, what makes it tricky to treat, you know, um, you know, why is it more of a risk than some others? Because it is a RNA virus. It's not a DNA virus. It's an RNA virus. And when an RNA virus replicates itself, it does so in some pretty crazy ways sometimes. It's more susceptible to, not susceptible, it's more likely to mutate. DNA viruses replicate in very steady, predictable ways. RNA viruses, not so much. And because of that, they have a, they have a tendency to mutate um, much faster and in much wilder ways. So what may start out as nothing could turn into something extremely serious. Um, there are some things that um, in the process of writing this that I found that, you know, it may not have the higher mortality rate that SARS or MERS had, but what it does have um, is a very high rate of transmissivity. So um, the R not, you know, the, um, so if you go, if you were to walk into a, a room, uh, let's say of 10 people and you were infected, you would have, you know, what the R not is what, you know, how many people in that room would you reasonably infect? So this is, and I've seen various estimates and um, it's, this is going to change as more data comes in. Even the case fatality rate is going to change as more data comes in. Um, case fatality rate is, you know, how many people out of everybody who got infected, who died? That's in, in the, while the pandemic is going on, um, that number, you know, includes a bunch of cases with no outcomes, you know, because we've got a lot of people who are sick and there's been no outcome yet. We don't know if they're going to recover. We don't know if they're going to, you know, unfortunately not make it. So calculating a case fatality rate through this is very tricky. Um, this has a, a mortality rate right now or a case fatality rate of somewhere between 2 to 3% mm -hmm. on any given day, depending on what numbers come out. So it fluctuates somewhere between that. And, um, which, which allows it to go exponential. Well, that's the R not. That's, that's the rate of transmissivity. That's... Right. Um, Oh, you're talking about case fatality rate. I'm sorry. Right. So that's right. A, that's expression of percentage of two to three percent. The R not for this is also two to three mm -hmm. on 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 most um, on, on from most sources. So other sources punch it a little higher, maybe up to four. Right. Maybe to five, but who knows? But the, the sort of consensus is that it's so. If you were to walk into a room of 10 people, you could reasonably expect to infect two to three people. That's going to keep this going going. Do you remember that old commercial? Um, it was a, it was, I think it was a shampoo commercial or a hair coloring commercial where they said, I told two friends and they told two friends and yeah. so on and so on and so on. That's what makes this thing spread. In, con in contrast, the average influenza year, um, that has an R naught of about one to 1.25 um, so that's enough to keep it going, sometimes up to about 2%, maybe, maybe, um, but um, that's enough to keep it going. Um, but what we do know about the flu is that it has a season. It starts sometime in the fall and sometime in the spring, maybe between October to, I've seen October to April. I've personally experienced it more to be September through May in my area, but um we don't know if this has any seasonality at all. We have no clue. 
I mean, I, I don't understand the, the, the statement of, oh, this will all be wrapped up by April. I don't know how one can know that unless you're assuming that it's exactly like influenza um, that has a season. We have no idea if this has seasonality or not yet. This might go away in a, in a couple of months, or this could be something that goes on um, throughout the summer and into next year. Maybe it's just going to be here and we just have to deal with it. Or maybe it does have seasonality and we're going to see it again next fall. We, we don't know. But what I did in this book was I tried to collect what we did know. And there's actually a lot that we do know. Um, and as I was getting into it, it was becoming more worrisome and more worrisome and more worrisome. Um, when you look at the hard data, as opposed to, let's say, watching the nightly news and you get that nice sanitized, well, this is just like the flu and for most people, it's not going to be any big deal. So just wash your hands and you're fine. That's not what the data suggests. The data suggests that this is a highly infectious disease that right now, yeah, for about 80% of the people who catch it, they recover. But quite a bit of them and this, this also fluctuates on a daily basis. I've seen it anywhere from 13% up to about 20% um, end up with either a serious or critical complication to this. That's a lot of people who are sick. And while I was writing the book, I also found out, I, I got in there researching, like, how many hospital beds do we actually have? If we, and that's also assuming that we converted all hospitals to just take care of COVID-19 you know, and nothing else, if that, if they were taken up 100% with, you know, COVID-19 patients, we still don't have enough beds for what we might potentially see of, you know, I mean, so. Can, can I, let me break in just, just to put some numbers to it because yeah. I, I hate social media, um, Facebook. I only get on for very few reasons now, but I mm -hmm. do get, I have, the, I do have the prepper website group. And uh, someone said, hey, just wash your hands, uh, you know, don't overblow this. And I did start talking about that. I looked at numbers. In the United mm -hmm. States, we have 327 million people. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at 20%, you're looking at 65, or, um, 65 million people, something around, uh, something around the, that number. And even yeah. if you are looking at 2%, you start to drop that down just 2% is, is 6.5. So 6.5 million people. And, you know, again, we don't know, like you were saying, this has only been out two and a half months at the time of this right. recording. And so we don't know a lot of information. I just think it's, it's smart to yeah. try to stay as informed as possible right. and to be thinking ahead of, yeah. of what, what could possibly happen. Right. So now the second part of the book though, um, cause, cause I do, I cover a lot of data, a lot of statistics and, and that and I and I do talk about comparing, you know, what we saw, you know, with how governments and media responded, um, not just with Ebola, but also with MERS, because we've had a coronavirus in the U.S. Um, before. Um, it was brought over by people who had been in the Middle East, and they had come here. And again, with MERS, with certain people, it is absolutely nothing, and they're asymptomatic, but they're still shedding and other people become sick around them. And we had a case here where a, a physician or a health worker came over from uh, Saudi Arabia, came to attend a medical conference here, and someone who was at this conference, who was at like the other end of a conference table, um, where the only contact they had was they shook hands once, that was the end of it. They ended up becoming um, 
ill I, and um, they had coronavirus antibodies in them. But And the CDC said, oh, yeah, we, we have our official first case. And then like a couple of weeks later, they retracted it. Um, if he had antibodies, then he had it. That's You don't get antibodies any other way. So, you know, do we want to say that they were covering it up or they were trying to mitigate any panic? Maybe, or maybe, uh, you know, it, you know, these are, these are types of things like you, you, if, if it was an error initially, if they diagnosed them improperly in the beginning, you can't be, you, you gotta be really sure about this. And the other, so that brings me back to the, the, the current coronavirus in that we have, we, we do have an issue with tests. Um, the, there was a batch of tests that went out that was very faulty. Supposedly from now on, that's been corrected, but we've had a lot of tests that went out that had false negatives and false positives. And so there was a mess with that. Um, but what I, what I do in the second portion of, of the book is I do look at um, general pandemic preparedness. Um, at the time I was writing this, my other pandemic book was only available on Kindle. And I know a lot of preppers don't like buy electronic versions. They want the hard copy. So I put some of that in here, plus some additional stuff that I've learned since then. And I also took like a look at this as an herbalist, um, what, what options there might be for a coronavirus, um, because it's all speculation. I mean, let me, let me put it this way. I personally, because of the experience that I have with herbs, am quite comfortable saying I'm, I would probably handle this kind of thing on my own. I probably would not go to a hospital unless unless it had escalated to a point where I needed a ventilator because I don't, I don't have the skills or equipment to put myself on a ventilator, but everything else I, I could, I feel reasonably comfortable handling. Um, but I cover some of that in the book, but it's theory because this n never had to do this before. So, um, but I put it out there as, as an opinion and I, you know, people get benefit from it. Great. That gives them a starting off point to, think about what they might be able to do for themselves. And, but, you know, I didn't spend a whole lot of time on it only because when you look at the numbers, so you've got like 80% of people that this is going to be like a mild cold or maybe a flu, maybe even a bad flu, but they'll get over it and they'll be okay. Um, but for, you know, when the, the statistics for people who have serious complications and they go up when you have comorbidities like diabetes and heart disease and hypertension, which run rampant through the U.S., um, your risk of serious complication or critical goes way up. Um, you, you get pushed right into that high-risk group. That puts almost one out of every two American adults in the high-risk group, um, except for like, you know, some of those, um, um, you know, some of those chronic conditions like arthritis, like I mentioned, probably wouldn't. But even if you took like half of those people and said it was half, like you were saying with the numbers, um, like with the total population, you ran the numbers. That's not to say that everybody in the U.S. is actually going to get the infection. But let's say you said like a third of the population. So like um, one of the last figures you gave was like six million something people. OK, let's assume a third of that. You know, you know, because it was, let's say a third of the population was infected, not the entire population. That's still two million freaking people. That's a lot of people. And you know, even if it's the other thing is that even if it's not going to take you out of the game, it may take you out of work for an extended period of time. And you know, it's going to take a lot of people out of work for an extended period of time. So let's say you have, you know, say let's say you develop a serious 
or critical complication, but you survive and everybody's going, oh yeah, the mortality rates, two to 3%, not that big of a deal. No, but you'll have people who are sick for maybe a month or longer. And, they're, and, they're, and those sick people are going to require hospital level care. They don't have an herb to handle ARDS, which is um, acute respiratory distress syndrome. You need a ventilator. You know, that's when you're having those cytokine storms um, where your lungs are starting to, you know, fluids starting to leak in because the walls of your lungs are, are more permeable and they're weaker from all this coughing. So, um, you know, that's when you start developing, you know, pneumonia and ARDS and you, you can't breathe. You're drowning from the inside out. Um, we have, we, we know how to treat that, you know, with supportive care. We don't have something that attacks the virus specifically, but we do have supportive care and it's excellent. My, my, what I see the risk is that we don't have enough beds or enough equipment to handle the supportive care if we saw the worst case scenario or even like a mid-level, you know, scenario there. And when you've got that many sick people, there are going to be people who could potentially die simply because there are no beds available. And that doesn't necessarily mean from the virus. That could mean hospitals at surge capacity, but you have a heart attack, you know, or maybe you had a car accident, you know, um, you know, one would hope that the ER could still accommodate you, but let's say now you're in a hospital where there's an infectious disease and let's not kid ourselves. Containment has been a joke. <laughs> this is, I mean, we've got cities in China locked down there are more people under some type of travel advisory than the entire population of the West Coast of the United States. There's like 780 million who are restricted from moving in some way, shape, or form. And this thing has still got new cases every single day. You know, and so we're starting to see disruptions and other things like um, in Milan and in cities in Italy, there are schools that are closed, businesses that are closed, um, a lot of travel restrictions all, you know, for like, you know, well, I don't know if it's, I don't know if you call that travel uh, restrictions there. I don't know if they've done that yet. I think, I think I read something that they did, but it's all starting to become a jumble because I've read so much about it at this point, but there, but those types of things, you know, that's going to keep other people out of work because if they, if they have to stay home to watch the kids, you know, if their kid's six years old, you're not going to leave them home alone so you can go to work. You know, you're going to stay home with them. So there's another person out of work. Um, you know, do you have the money to cover your bills for the next three, four months or however long this lasts? You don't know. There are some jobs that are going to, you know, be easy to do from home, you know, where you can telecommute. My husband doesn't have one of those jobs. He has to physically show up to work. So, I mean, and unfortunately now he works in a school, so that's like a Petri dish. So we have, you know, sort of, you know, our own protocols here, you know, to deal with that. But, um, there's a lot of things that can go wrong from a pandemic. And with Ebola, we saw a lot of that. Um, there were a lot of people who just went to the hospital who just couldn't get care because there just weren't enough beds or enough hospital staff to care for them. Um, and so there were, there were uh, women who had complications during labor and get a doctor to come in. Um, it was, they didn't have them. They, they couldn't get one to go to the house because they were afraid the doctor was afraid of getting Ebola. And, you know, unfortunately, thankfully, birth is generally very safe for, for most women, generally speaking, but things can go wrong. And if they do go wrong, they tend to go wrong very quickly and it can be catastrophic. But 
that's my, my midwife training in there kicking in, but um, it's for the most part, it's generally safe. But now you put it in the context of a pandemic, that very small portion of women who are going to have life-threatening complications during labor may not get that care because there may not be the doctors available. Um, there may not be the equipment available because um, they're just, it may not be there. So um, you can, and then of course, if you've got, there are other complications too. If you've got people not showing up for work, now you've got to can be concerned about sanitation, especially if you live in a city. Um, trash may not get picked up. Rats come around. What happens with rats and rodents? They bring their own diseases. You know, that's how the plague, you know, got started. Um, so I think this is also part of why people have so much normalcy bias about pandemics, because when they kick off, you know, it starts off slowly, starts off slowly. Oh, it's somewhere else. It's over there. It's not a big deal. Not all that serious until it is. And then all of a sudden, you know, if you've waited until that time, well, you probably aren't going to get your supplies. And, you know, it's, I, I think we've done ourselves a huge disservice by, you know, centralizing, you know, we grow all of our grain in certain areas. We grow all of our fruits in certain areas. We import a ton of food, you know, and we've gotten out of eating seasonally and we've gotten away from, you know, growing food in our backyards. And of course, if you're in a city, you know, and it, it, this is this is one of those things that, like, on one hand, I feel bad, and like, I want to give all kinds of advice for urban preppers because I that's a that is a real legitimate thing. They are they are in the city for whatever reasons they're in the city. Maybe they just like it. Maybe they have to be for work. Whatever the whatever it is, um, or people who are just getting into it don't know how to get out of the city. Maybe they don't have the money to leave, and there's a lot of reasons why someone might be in a city. Um, elderly family. I'm in a city right now because I have aging family on the other side of the city. And I mean, I've got a remote place that is going to be getting ready for me to, you know, scram to if this spreads, but I'm here on a day-to-day -day basis because of family. So everyone's got their reasons for that. But, um, you know, when we've centralized our agriculture and you live in an urban center, I mean, I'm lucky I can grow food in my backyard, but a lot of people can't because they don't have a backyard. Maybe they only have a balcony or they don't have a balcony at all. And there's nothing, you know, maybe they got to look into indoor gardening, but then what happens if you lose your power? You know, and if you're in an apartment, you're not necessarily going to be installing solar panels somewhere, you know? So it's, I think it's just a lot for people to wrap their brain around and, and being in a city, unfortunately, you know, you've got that population density. Yeah. It's, it, it this is one of those times that, you know, you might, you might want to, if you are in a city and you don't have a place to go to, um, you might want to like call up some relatives and maybe see if you can go stay with them or something. If, you know, just in case things got bad, you just get out of Dodge a little sooner. The other thing I think that um, is, is tough with pandemics, you know, and it's well, not just with pandemics, but in prepping in general is knowing when to leave. That's, with, with, I mean, you're generally not going to get any notice. I mean, I don't think that anybody in Wuhan got any notice that there was a lockdown coming on. You're not going to do that. Now, I've sort of arbitrarily set this up in my head. Um, I, I'm about an hour south of Boston. Boston is a huge college town. It's a huge medical town. There are more hospitals. I mean, we've got some world-class hospitals up in Boston. But I don't want to be anywhere near that, you know, while this is going on. Um, hospitals can also be targets in, in a pandemic, you know. Um, there were a lot of clinics and hospitals targeted during the Ebola 
um, outbreak. But um, but I sort of set in my head because there's already been one case of a college student who came back, you know, from China, brought it here. He seems, I think he's recovered, but um, but still, th there's a huge potential for spread in a city like Boston. Um, I'm also not that far from Providence, Rhode Island. So that's another college town, another medical town, and where you've got, you know, where you've got a high population density. Um, so I've sort of set in my head this arbitrary thing of the moment I hear of three cases within an hour's drive of mine, I'm out of here. I, I don't know if that's accurate or not, but it's a plan. And whatever that plan is, whatever makes sense for you, just uh, just put it in a place. I don't know if you're going to be right or not. I don't know if I'm going to be right. I hope I'm going to be right. First of all, I hope there's, I hope there are no cases around where I live. I don't, I don't want to try this out. But if I had to, at least I've, I've got some sort of a baseline. I think if there's three cases around, odds are there's probably way more you don't know about. And I'm just going to get out of Dodge. There, there's a lot to consider there. And it's all that general preparedness that goes into it. Uh, yeah. I know that I've talked about that on the podcast before where pandemics, you know, the, the dominoes start to fall. And oh, that's, yeah. that's one of those things that uh, you just need to be aware. One of the things I always talk about is just staying informed and staying aware of what is going on. Um, if, if your source of information is just uh, the six o'clock news or the 10 o'clock news and that's it, you know, that's, it's not, in my opinion, it's not good enough. I, like I said, no, I've been following not. this for a while and uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where um, I'm getting to the point where I, I weigh the, uh, I weigh the, 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 the aspect of, do I sound like a whack job or <laughs> do I start to talk to the people that I care about, the, the people that I work with, the people, mm -hmm. you know, I, I did set, sit down my team and, and we talked a little bit about it and I'm like, look, I, I, some of y'all know what I do in uh, outside of this. And it, I might sound like a wag job to some of you, but I'm saying this because I care. And I think that right. really spoke a lot to, to the team and they were very appreciative of that. And ever yeah. since then they've been coming in like, Hey, my husband's job has, has put this out. And I got this email and uh, you know, I'm not thinking about kind of like, you know, my parents and, and my, uh, my son or my daughter uh, and they have a, a, a brand new baby and they're not really thinking about it. I'm going to be preparing for them and, mm -hmm. and all these different things that are going on. And so, um, you know, the, the, the people that are listening to this, although there's been a, a surge in people coming to Prepper website and uh, listening to the podcast, I'm sure you're getting it as well on your website as well oh, yeah. because people are starting to uh, Google and starting to ask questions and, and, and finding mm -hmm. um, the stuff that we are putting out there. So there's, there's more interest in it. And yeah. I, I think as uh, more people get prepared, hopefully in the preparedness community, we can use this as a time to talk about why it's so important to prepare and not right. just, not just freak people out, but talk about why it's important to prepare because after this, you know, after this coronavirus, after COVID-19, there's going to be other things, right? There's going to be other yeah. hurricanes. There's going to be other winter storms. Oh yeah. There's going to be other, you know, things that happen. And so, so it's just like a layoff, right? you know, every day or, you know, or someone gets sick. Like I, you know, I had to close my practice for a while because of the preeclampsia and that kind of thing. So you may have a personal financial issue that, you know, comes up. I mean, and wouldn't it be a whole better situation if you knew you had six months worth of food and you didn't have a grocery expense for a bunch of months while you were looking for a new job? It can be very practical. In, in New England, we get ice storms. that will take out power. 
you know, I mean, it's, to me, you know, it's, I mean, if you're going to have things in your house like a fire extinguisher, or you're going to have, um, you know, a little bit of, um, and like a nice filled pantry, or you're going to have a backup generator or something, that all seems very, very practical, and probably a good way to, you know, get people interested in certain things, like what happens in your region, but I'm getting a ton of hits on my website. Um, I had actually um, taken some time off from this work to deal with my own health, and so um, but I've still been prepping the whole time um, and I've still been involved in, in that, but I hadn't been writing and I hadn't been doing things for a while. So I'm, I started getting these um, emails like, like a, like a storm of them coming in, you know, um, asking questions about old articles that I wrote about MERS. Cause it's similar to um, it's similar to COVID-19. And then of course I wrote the book. So then I've got, a, a whole lot of traffic coming to the website. So I guess I'm back to work full time now. Happens. <laughs> 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 I mean, I was sort of back to work part time seeing cl clients local to me, like herbal clients, but now, yeah, we're, it's, it's back full force, you know, so I've got, um, I've got a bunch of website maintenance to do. So please bear with me while I get it all done. Um, <laughs> there's lots of stuff I've got to fix and I'm, and, and I've, there's some older articles I really want to update, but I also have courses, herbal courses on there. Um, they are not that I would, I am not taking any new signups right now. It, I'm, as I just want to make some update, updates to the site so that the courses are not buggy. So that's, that's the only issue there. So, um, but there will be, um, my herbal medicine course will be um, the first one that's up there. My my book, um, Preppers Natural Medicine, is essentially that course, but like squished down. So, I mean, there's there's obviously some things that just weren't going to fit in the book. Um, but, you know, if, if you can get that, great. Um, if that fits in your budget, great. Of course, a little bit more because there's more involved. There's more of my personal time. There's more interaction and things like that. So, um, but there's also... Um, there, there's also a burn care course on there, an herbal burn care course. Um, there's another one um, um, that, I, that I need to work through some of the bugs because I've been away from my site so long. That's on ditch medicine that I teach with a friend of mine who was a former combat medic who was in Bosnia during that whole um, conflict. So there's a lot of good stuff there. Um, I just got to get it up. Uh, I just got to get it running slightly smoother and then the courses will be out again. <laughs> well, the, the website looks good. I mean, you're at, you know, the, the website's herbalprepper.com. Um, mm. Like always, I'm going to link to it in, in the show notes as well as your books so that they can, um, so that, you know, people can easily find them. Hey, we we're way over an hour, you know, <laughs> in, in, in talking. Yeah, yeah. And, I just, uh, I'm looking at that now. Going a, a lot of, a lot of good stuff though. I want to I want to end off with this. Um, if things get bad, and mm -hmm. we don't have the medicines that we need, um, and people are looking for solutions out there, and they they move to herbal medicine, can you just very quickly give us three? Of course, we can go do research. We can go do all that. We right. can grab grab your book. Can you give us about three herbs that really, you know, our, our powerhouses when we're talking about herbal medicine. Can you share like three herbs that would maybe we can start researching or put it on our radar? Okay. Um, one of the first things I'm going to mention, it's not an herb. It is a chemical that is found in a bunch of different herbs. It's called berberine. And berberine is a yellow um, and bitter chemical constituent. It's found in barberry. It's found in Oregon grapefruit. Um, it's found in uh, golden seal, but golden seal is a bit of a um, 
uh, endangered plant, but most people can find barberry or Oregon grapefruit. Um, it, it affects so many things. It is um, very good for the liver. Any bitter herb really is, but um, the liver is responsible for over a thousand different functions in the body. So um, if you can help the liver, you can, you often help a lot of other things. But in addition to that, it's also very effective um, if you need to find a substitute for metformin. It works just as well. Um, and I know that from studies and personal experience. I take it for that. Um, but it's also good for all kinds of things like cholesterol, triglycerides. Um, but it's also great as an as an antibacterial agent. So if you end up with a cut, that's if you end up with a wound that ends up starting to get infected, you can apply that topically. So um, you can also um, make a mouthwash. It's not going to be pleasant, but you can make mouthwash from it. You can um, gargle with it if you've got an infection on your throat that you might think might be strep. Uh, there's, there's a lot of uses for it topically. Um, something else that you might want to have, um, I'm going to throw out elderberry um, because um, it's excellent for influenza. And while this COVID thing is going on, um, it could look like the flu. We don't know. Is it the flu or is it not? But the other thing, other than just being very effective for influenza, um, elderberry is um, very good at um, supporting your immune system and stimulating your immune system. And, I, and before anyone says, oh, but it can increase cytokine response. Yes, it can. Am I worried about a cytokine storm from it? Not remotely. Um, and, and I'm going to give a couple of reasons why, because this comes up all the time online. Uh, and, and I know that um, a lot of preppers and some herbalists, they get freaked out about it. But this is my personal take on it. Um, yes, it is. Uh, it will increase cytokine response, but that's not the same thing as a cytokine storm. Cytokine um, activity increases when your immune system kicks in. Cytokine storm is when your immune system is in like overdrive and it's now just attacking your body. There's two different things. So while it has an it has a pro-inflammatory response, there are other parts, there are other um, aspects of, of elderberry that make it anti-inflammatory. That you know, the body seems to sort of know which way it has to go when you take it. So I personally have zero reservations using it. If you do, please don't feel obligated to because I said so. But but the other thing is that we have influenza go around every single year, and this is a very common um, remedy um, for the flu. Um, if it, we take it so often for the flu, it's sort of permeated out into mainstream culture, a way, you know, not just herbalists and stuff, you know, um, use it. It's on all the homesteading websites, have an elderberry syrup recipe and everything. So uh, what I would say, though, is that if, if it were so cytokine, um, if it were increasing cytokine um, activity to the point that cytokine storms were a risk, we would have seen it with influenza already. And I've never heard of a single case of it inducing a cytokine storm in someone with a bad case of influenza. So if it's not going to do it with that, I don't see any evidence that it's going to do it with coronavirus. You know, I mean, we have coronaviruses as part, like uh, maybe, you know, 15 to 30% of our common cold is, is a coronavirus. Um, and it never ends up really being much of anything. But if this were to um, induce a cytokine storm with coronaviruses, you'd think we'd already see that. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but my personal experience with it and, and my assessment of it after all this time is that it's not going to, it's not going to do that. It, it, just because it raises 
you know, some cytokine activity. It also is anti-inflammatory in other ways. Um, I think they kind of cancel, cancel each other out. That's my personal take on it, but I would have that um, because it's going to strengthen your immune system. And to me, that's going to help fight off whatever is floating around out there. So those two things. And a third one, oh, <laughs> it'll limit me to three herbs. Um, um, I'm going to say thyme. Thyme, um, when you inhale it, is a wonderful antimicrobial for the respiratory system. Um, but you could also use this as an essential oil um, or as an herbal steam if you wanted to do that. But if you also, if you get the essential oil, um, you can use this as a disinfectant. It's an extremely powerful antimicrobial uh, disinfectant. So if you wanted to add that to like a, a vinegar and water spray that you spray on things to help disinfect because um, bleach does have a very short shelf life. I mean, and yes, you can get pool shock and all of that, but even if that runs out at some point, if you have time, you could make a very strong, and let's say you don't even have the essential oil, you could make a very, very strong infusion of time and use that to wash your counters, use that to wash your floors and your other surfaces. And maybe it's not quite as potent as that essential oil, um, but if you use enough of it, you know, and you make a strong enough infusion, you are going to kill a lot. So I think um, time has um, a lot of uses in, in, in that regard. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you. Well, okay. So with that, are these things that you can grow? Would you grow these things? Or are oh, they? Yeah. Okay. Um, so. so with, um, with time, obviously, I mean, that, that's a very easy herb to grow. Most people right. can grow that. Um, now with berberine, um, I, I will say, I will admit that I'm a very lazy herbalist and I hate powdering herbs. It's just sort of a pain in the neck task. But um, so I, I buy my source of berberine online from Amazon, but in, if you were to forage it, you, you, or wildcraft it in my area, there's a, there is a plant philodendron amaranth and not uh, in, in it's easily accessible to me, but you could grow, um, you could grow barberry, you could grow um, Oregon grapefruit, you could grow golden seal. Um, the only thing with that is that you are harvesting the root. So when you harvest the root, that's it. The plant's gone. So make sure that you have space to grow quite a few plants because then they're going to spread from year to year. And um, some of these things may grow better in different regions. I may be able to grow golden seal easily where I live. That doesn't mean someone four hours away can do the same thing. Um, Oregon grapefruit and, and other types of Mahonias um, will grow in, in a vast, um, uh, uh, many, many areas. We'll, we'll, um, you can do that. Barberry, I think, should grow in, in a lot of um, areas too. So, um, so you could get that, and you have to harvest the root, and then um, and you got to dry it and powder it. Um, it doesn't tincture. Well, excuse me. It doesn't extract in water very well, but you you can make a tincture. But when you do it, when you when you make a tincture of that, add ten percent of your total um, solvent should be acidic. So apple cider vinegar would, or white vinegar if that's what you have on hand. Um, but you got to have some kind of an acid in there to help that get into the tincture. Um, but as a, as a tea, it's not, it doesn't extract well into water. So you're going to lose quite a bit of that. Um, then um, the other that I said was elderberry. Um, you, you, the, you can find these wild in a lot of places. Um, so 
that that's great, but you can also grow them yourself. Um, and uh, so, and they grow in a wide uh, range of climates. So if someone wanted to, um, so we can always grow, we can get the seeds and all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. But if someone wanted to buy these, um, you had mentioned Amazon. Are there any other places that we could go? Or if we go to Amazon, are there specific brands that we should be looking for? Um, yeah. Um, there's a couple on Amazon. I know Star West is one of them. They send the herbs in sealed Mylar bags. So um, I, I like that. Um, and whenever I've ordered from them or directly from the company, I've always had, you know, um, a good product. Mountain Rose Herbs is another one. Um, but the place where I order mine the most um, is uh, Jean's Greens in, out of New York. Um, I've always had really good herbs come from her shop. Um, they do ship. Um, I, I tend to buy more there than I do at Mountain Rose only because um, Mountain Rose is on the other side of the country and their shipping um, takes a long time to get to me. Whereas Jean's Greens is in New York and I'm in Taxachusetts and it gets there very quickly for me. So a couple of days and I've got, I've got what I need. Um, so big, big cities would have herbal shops, but are they called herbal shops? I mean, what do you, sometimes, um, um, yeah, sometimes you could, you could search for, um, an herb shop. Um, I like to just Google herb shops near me. Um, a lot of times you'll get put towards health food stores mm -hmm. that sell a lot of herbal teas. Um, sometimes you'll find an actual herb shop. They're few and far between these days because the, the regulations for them, um, I know have put a lot of people out of business, um, just trying to keep up with the FDA and staying, you know, keeping their nose clean with the FDA. Um, there, there's, um, there's a lot of very heavy regulation of that, but some places do um, still thrive. Um, well, I've got one that's several towns over, but a lot of the herb shops, um, they're ordering bulk herbs from the same place I order them. So um, I can, you know, if I'm not growing it, I'm buying them in bulk. I'm not, if you're just getting into it and you want to buy like a, a nice big, like, spectrum of herbs and uh, like a whole bunch of them yeah if you go to your local herb shop you can buy herbs like buy like the ounce or two ounces at a time and 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 that that'll be fine for your experimentation of stuff before you invest in a, in a large amount um i know some i mean if you buy um herbs online a lot of times you're only going to find them in bulk amounts um but I, I do well i think mountain rose herbs and and jeans greens do have smaller amounts i just don't but i think amazon you got to buy um larger amounts if that's just what I've seen. But if you're only looking for a bunch, you can get smaller amounts and experiment. Um, but other than that, um, uh, it, it can be expensive um, if you're buying lots of herbs in bulk. Um, but um, there's a, there's a, a very, there is a very good seed source, um, strictly medicinal seeds. Um, if you're looking for those like rare herbs that you don't typically see in let's say you know your your standard seed catalogs, um, you're looking for those those real medicinal ones. Um, strictly medicinal seeds carries a lot of um, like a lot of the herbs that you know most people haven't really heard of, but but that you really want to be growing. Okay, that's good. A lot of a lot of good resources. So uh, I'm going to link to your website herbalprepper.com. Um, I'm going to link to your your books and all that good stuff. 
Is there anything else that you'd like to, to share with uh, the Prepper Website Podcast community as we, we close down here? Yeah, sure. Um, so whether or not this particular COVID-19 is going to be the next great pandemic, um, this is still a great opportunity to, you know, inventory your preps, get, you know, get ready just in case. If, if it isn't, if it doesn't end up being this, it's going to be something else down the line. And this is a really good opportunity to start talking with your friends and your loved ones and, and do so from, you know, a place that's not fear-based, but this is, this is very practical. This is very solution oriented. This is, to be honest, probably one of the most optimistic things you can do, you know, um, because if, if you don't have any optimism on this, then why bother prepping? You're preparing because you are preparing to outlast. Because you know that eventually society is going to do what it always does. It, it rebuilds. It, it comes back. We bounce back. We are resilient. And we will always get past the next calamity. So if you can approach it from that, you know, hopefully you can get more of your uh, friends and family interested in prepping simply because this is a major story right now and, and it might be a great opportunity to to bring it up and it's also a great opportunity to start uh your interest in herbal medicine yeah, very true well uh kat thanks so much for being on with us uh really do appreciate it a lot of great information and uh just uh want to say thank you other than your website are you on social media is there other places oh, that yeah. people can find you oh yes i'm i'm on facebook um I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Pinterest, I'm on YouTube, I'm everywhere, in all places, I'm a social media junkie, so um, you, you, you can find me. <laughs> all right, sounds good. Well, Thanks. thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Wow, what a great episode. Like I said, a lot of information. It was long, and uh, but a, a lot of good stuff there. So again, thank you, Kat Ellis, for coming on the podcast and sharing your information and your knowledge about herbal preparedness. Uh, guys, again, like, all, like I said before in the, the interview, I'm going to link to all of her. Uh, you know, I'm going to link to herbalprepper.com. I'm going to link to... Uh, her books so that you can go to those and, and go take a look at those. I'm not, I can't link to her books or Amazon on the, in the show notes, but you can come over. I make it very easy for you to come over to the episode. And from there you can link to Amazon and, and look at her books. Um, the preppers medicine cabinet, I think is a really great book. And that's just one of those resources to have, but it, it, as well, look at the, the new book, um, you know, on the Wuhan, the Wuhan coronavirus, and then the pandemic preparedness that, that is going to be coming out. Like she said, uh, it will be out in hard copy again, the publishers bringing that one back. So I hope you take a look at those and uh, consider those for your prepper library. I think they would be really good additions to to uh, to your library. Well, everyone, that is it for episode 625. Hey, if you are not subscribed to the podcast, make sure you hit subscribe in your podcast catcher or head on over to theprepperwebsitepodcast.com. And that way you never miss another episode of Sweet Prepper Goodness. And don't forget, if you're looking for more preparedness and self-reliant information, you can head on over to PrepperWebsite.com, where we link to 8 to 12 articles every day of the very best self-reliant articles out there. We also have pages dedicated to alternative news, firearms, DIY, 
Bible prophecy, frugal living, and homesteading. And lastly, don't forget to join the email list if you haven't. When you do, I'm going to send you a free PDF on 25 hand-picked preparedness articles you should read. Some of these articles you can't even find on the internet any longer. And with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until next week, stay prepped and aware. Peace.